I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? Kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Love and the Fighter. I'm your host, Charles DeGisco, and it is great to be back here with all of you. So, today, we are entering into the world of video and audio, as opposed to just audio. Um, not sure if I'm going to do the whole episode with the video going, but we got this backdrop. I've like soundproof my, my studio, and I say that in quotes, and I got a little home situation set up going on here, so it is pretty cool. Um, with that said, we'll see how it shakes out. I'd like to keep some sort of visual identity going on here. If not for the whole episode, certainly for like real important pieces, but as I'm looking at the camera now, I'm seeing that you know, I should shave and do my hair, but not this time, guys. Uh, so I hope everybody's doing well. We got a couple things to talk about today, the first of which is the poll, right? So like I said last week, my new format is going to be focused on, uh, you know, dating and, and fighting still, but I'm going to include a little bit more about the, a little more data from, from my friends, mostly on Instagram, but just I get so many stories and so many anecdotes and so much input, I want to start putting a little bit more data to it. So last week I asked about if cheating was ever acceptable, and this week I asked two questions. Now, I told you on the on the episode, I, I wish I had said the follow-up question last, last week, which was, have you ever cheated, right? You voted in the poll, 97% of people or 93% of people said cheating is never acceptable, and outside of a few people just trolling and busting my balls... The, the ones who said it was had some very specific caveats. In that case, I didn't really ask um, the follow-up, which was, have any of you cheated, right? Knowing it's bad, why did you, you know, did you cheat as well, and what were your reasons for doing so? But this week, I started fo- asking the follow-up, right? Everybody's kind of, you know, the questions will get a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, but um, I want to be able to ask things that really kind of make you think and give you a, make you give me a good response. And, and so often, this turns into really good conversations that, I'm always interested to hear about, right? I'm always interested to hear everybody's input on why they do certain things and and everything that goes with that. So this week, the question was, can an open relationship work? And then the follow-up to that was, do you know of any that have had some success, right? Now, I leave some of this open-ended because it's really up to you to determine what is success. I believe success is when things are, you know, positive and happy and fun and basically just not dramatic, right? But other people's barrier for success might be much lower. Maybe it's higher, although I feel like my threshold for success is quite high. But nevertheless, the the fact of the matter is I got some good responses and this poll was a little bit closer, right? So if, and they're meant to be polarizing, right? Cheating is, is something that a lot of people are against, but you always want to hear about it when it happens. Um, in open relationships, I think a lot of people like the idea of them, but they haven't really thought them out too much. Um, and anyway, so, so we had 25% of people answered. Actually, the statistics were the same. This is one really cool part of this uh, follow-up question data-driven poll, right? Both studies had, between the Love and the Fighter Instagram and my own personal Instagram, came out to 25% of people said, yes, an open relationship can work. And they said 25 and 25% of people knew of an open relationship that had success, whether it was their own or somebody else's. I didn't, I didn't dig in too much with that, which, so that's just interesting, right? So like both questions had the same 
percentages. And you're thinking, well, yeah, it makes sense. If you believe it works, it, you, you know, you probably know somebody who's, who's set that example. On the contrary, there were multiple people who responded yes to the first one and no to the second, and others who just disregarded the first question and, and said no or yes to the second, right? So there was like a little bit of variety, even though we had the same percentages, it was different people making those percentages. I found that to be pretty interesting, including some folks who were like, no, it's not possible, right? They were in that 75% margin of, nope, it's not going to be a good, uh, it, I don't think they could work, but knew somebody who was in them. So it's kind of telling you like, oh man, they have an opinion on this relationship. Like they don't think it's healthy or they don't think it's working, right? And maybe they're not wrong either. This is why it's like such an interesting, uh, the, it's deeper than the statistics, right? It's deeper than the three out of every four people say no, because it's not every, th- you know what I mean? Like some people are in one camp and not in the other, and they're in both yeses or both noes or one no and one yes. I'm, I'm definitely going to keep doing this, but let's actually get into the open relationship itself. So I don't believe it can work except for two very specific circumstances. One of those stories that I had heard was from two guys sharing one woman. And I want to talk about this because it's a bit of an anomaly, right? And like for all my queens out there, you're thinking, oh, wow, that would be amazing, right? And maybe, maybe you would like it. The reality is, and this was confirmed, you like the power right? People like the power of this, especially, you know, there's, look guys, there's, there's gender differences. The women like the power of having two men, um, share her, right? But her attraction for those men decreases because she doesn't really respect them that much because they're kind of just letting somebody else, you know, what, not to go like territorial or anything, but they're letting somebody, they're sharing one person and they're still committed to that one person. They don't have an open relationship. They're both committed to her. And, the friend of this person who was telling me the story, so it is third party, keep that in mind, was basically saying like, yeah, the two guys were kind of like beta. (laughs) Actually, her exact words were, yeah, one was definitely more beta, but they're both kind of beta. And the one was strong and and independent. And she, she wasn't as attracted to the person as was, as, as she was attracted to the fact that she had multiple people pursuing her, right? That doesn't really sound like a healthy relationship to me. Uh, it actually makes me think of that one relationship where there was the one woman who had four boyfriends and, you know, it was this, they were all into like video games and stuff. And I, I think I've actually talked about the article, but basically it was all of these guys sharing this one woman. And I mean, look at its core, nobody was in shape or attractive or took care of themselves. We'll just leave it at that. And that's a very gentle way of putting it. But to make a long story short, um, one of those guys ended up killing the child of the other boyfriend and his girlfriend and then went to jail for it. Right. So very extreme. And I'm not basing open relationships on that, but it was like doomed from the start. And then that really set it straight. I feel like for, at least for that group of uh, group of folks, but in general, women don't really respect guys who will do that. But that's not to say they won't enjoy the power that comes with it. And by the way, like having power in something and in control over something, like in, in a healthy sense, not in like a crazy sense, people will find that attractive. They will take, you know, pleasure in that. I say that in air quotes. But it typically doesn't work. It just typically doesn't work. Unless the guy's got like a cuck fetish, which for those who don't know, that's basically you like seeing other men have sex with your the person you're committed to. Um, and this is a judgment-free zone, so I'm not going to say my personal opinion on that. So, hey, you do you if that makes you happy. It could definitely work there, right? Because 
the understanding is that it's strictly sexual and it's something that they're both deriving enjoyment from. The woman, the fact that she used to sleep with somebody else and, you know, still has a committed man there for her who still finds her attractive and who still likes all these things about her, presumably, and the man who's fulfilling that fantasy that he has. But those tend to be a little, that's a little bit rare and it's, it's really nuanced, right? Like it's a specific fetish. Oh, God, I hate that word. But the way I see it working the best, and my female listeners might roll your eyes, but I'm, let me explain, is when you have one man and one woman, and then they're allowed to bring other women into the relationship. And my reason for this isn't just like, oh, of course you're a guy, you want to have a lot of threesomes, which, by the way, guilty. Call it what it is. But what it is is that, in the reality, women, they are the ones who want the commitment, the uh, the commitment, and really just the emotional connection. That's so important to them. Whereas for men, they are just typically able to, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but this is, I'm not reinventing the wheel. This is what people, this is study, science has shown us, right? Men don't really associate emotions with sex the same way women do. And this is why I believe that can work, because a woman can effectively achieve all of the things she wants and, and feel fulfilled in the relationship, and the man can do the same while also being able to uh, scratch that physical itch per, if he were to get, get one. Everybody who commented on this really felt strongly that there had to be like a super strict guidelines and really a strong set of rules, and admittedly, I completely agree. I, I actually don't know if it could work, and I'm going to explain my opinion on it a little bit deeper here in a second, but I want to get to like some of the science. So, so I'm not citing them, but a lot of what I'm saying right now is from legitimate articles. So guys, trust me, I'm not, I'm not just bullshitting you. The best one, and this is the, the, the way where I only, this is the most successful one, is taking what I just said, but adding it a step further, which is when the woman likes both men and women, she's bi, and the man is only in two women, and they have a committed relationship amongst themselves, but they allow somebody to come in together with them. So together being when they're physically together, not separate. So think of it less, it's like an open relationship in a way, but really it's more like, oh, it's really actually the truest sense of being in an open relationship because it's them two together welcoming somebody else in with them as opposed to two people going out and doing their own thing and then having that security relationship thing that people like, uh, like trying to have their cake and eat it too. So the reason why this one works is because men don't have that same emotional reaction to sex that women do. And as long as, I mean, for a man, like that's a win-win, right? You're getting the physical of everything you could want. You're bringing somebody else into the relationship. Your, your girlfriend or wife or the woman you're with is getting both of her needs met. She's attracted to both men and women. So she's getting all of the, and when I say needs, I mean physical and emotional. Like you're checking all the boxes, but without, and assuming there's strong guidelines, without the negative feelings that are associated with that, right? The woman doesn't really have to worry about her, her man spending time with a woman without her and she's got a strong say in who he's spending time with because she needs to be she I mean she's 50% of this and the real key is that they're both equally attracted to that third party it's not a situation where it's like oh hey I'm not taking part of that you just go do your thing they're both equally invested in the attraction and the quality of the human being that they're bringing into that situation and that is a big difference but truthfully that's like really the only way I could see it. In a healthy manner, that's the only way I could see it working. Where you have a man and a woman who are in a relationship, 
and they bring in other women who they also enter into the relationship with. But only if she's equally attracted to the woman as he is. And equally being subjective, right? I mean, like, on a gender basis, not on a individual basis. The woman has got to be attracted and enjoy the company of women as well as men. Because if she doesn't, resentment will build. Like, these things just, they tend not to work. Unless you're like, and I mean, everybody could come up with an example. Maybe two. But as a general rule, I think, um, it wasn't Dr. Drew, it was the... One of the le- legitimate doctors on TV, if that's the thing, um, they, were, they were basically citing these, these studies that was just like, as soon as a relationship gets opened up, the timer for the relationship to end starts ticking. And it, everybody will say like, oh, I'm kind of open to it. Like, oh, this sounds like a plan. Like, let's give it a shot. Or like, I'm really open-minded and I like to try new things. All of those things. I, I believe that. But there's something very uh, primal and very deep about the, your partner the person you're committing to, being with somebody else, and you're supposed to be okay with it, right? Whereas cheating, it's like you don't know. So it's like it's like this deception. But mentally, you don't really know what's happening. So you, you feel the pain afterwards. But there's a whole different set of emotions that go into it when you know something's happening and you're supposed to be okay with it, but you're really not. And I think that's the part in an open relationship that really spells doom. And that's what like gets things raveled up and, and uh, it just... It seems like it's just a ticking time bomb. And Aubrey Marcus talks about this a lot. He is the founder of Onnit. Um, he's like really into like the ayahuasca, and he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he's just a somewhat influential guy into like total body health and all that. Big kettlebell fan. He's, he's actually created a really cool situation for himself. Um, but he had an open relationship, and he talked about how at first it was like very, you know, it's very like you're detached emotionally from the physical. That was like the big thing that kept getting repeated until eventually one day you weren't. And it, and he said it ended really, really poorly. And this was with somebody who he was engaged to. So I'm not going to use that as the, the one, that example or the other example I gave, like, oh, that's it. They can never work. But I just feel that it's under very strict, specific circumstances. And you're probably thinking like, well, what if it's a bi guy and a straight woman and it's just another guy getting brought into the relationship? It doesn't quite work the same way because there's still the risk of physical and emotional connections on the other side. And that that's kind of like the juxtaposition. A man won't care that there's a physical connection between two women, but a woman or a physical and emotional connection between two women that he's in a relationship with. But the same cannot be said on the other side of it. Because that's the value the man, the, the emotional connection with the woman is the valuable part. Whereas for a man, it's just, it's, I don't want to brush it off because this isn't doing it justice, but that is the bigger piece for the woman than the man, right? But I was really interested to hear what everybody thought about it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like every time I start talking about these, it's like, it's hard for me to not really start talking about my personal input on it. But that, like, I do the research, and, and maybe I should start citing these articles that I read when I get into it, just because it, I think it adds a layer of legitimacy to it. But let me tell you my opinion on it. So building off that, I, I tend to agree that the only way it could work, weird, oh, I shouldn't say weird, well, now it's my opinion, so sexual fetishes aside, right? Whatever you're into, you're into. I don't, I don't need to be a part of that. But from a, like a healthy standpoint, the only way I could see it working is when you have a woman who is as equally attracted to the other women and equally invested into the other women coming into the relationship as the man is for all those biological reasons. I just don't really know how it works otherwise. 
I, you know, and, and it's funny because when it comes to the commitment from me, I'm not sure that's something I'd really be down with doing, even if, if she was really on board with it. I, I'm sure I could come around to it, right? But there's something inherently like, I don't know, I don't want to say it's like possessive because that's not really what I mean by it, but it's just like you have this agreement. You, you make this commitment. I'm really big on commitment, not just in relationship, just when you make a commitment, when you give somebody a word, you, you got to stick to it. It's so, so important. But you make this commitment with somebody and it's you have these intimate, intimate moments and I think for me, it's I can't imagine sharing that intimate moment with somebody else and taking it a step further with somebody else at the same exact time. Um, so I didn't talk about this last week. I've never cheated in a relationship, never cheated emotionally, never cheated physically. And yeah, definitely proud to say that for sure. Because any woman I speak to, I get to say like, yeah, it's never happened yet. Why would it happen with you? Right. I can literally, it's, I don't have to say like I've changed. I don't have to say, and I'm not judging anybody if they have, but I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that I've never said that. I've never done that, really. Right? I've never cheated. I've had the opportunity, like everybody, and I chose not to. Because my commitment and my word was more important. But the reasoning for not doing that, it's not like, I don't mean it selfishly, but it's like a part of it is just that I, when I make that commitment, I just feel like if I were to break it, I'm breaking more than just that per- I'm just I'm, I'm doing more than just hurting that person's feelings. It feels like I'm doing more. I'm doing more harm. It's like I'm, I'm changing who I am because I put so much weight into that. I put so much weight into people being able to say like, oh, if Charles says something, I believe it. Like if I make a promise, which I don't usually do, but if I make a promise, there's like no doubt that it will get done. And that's so valuable. And the second you break a promise, or in this case, a commitment, that, that thought in the back of somebody's head or, or really just that possibility for error immediately comes back. It enters into the equation. And that's what I always want to avoid. I always want to avoid that feeling. I always want to avoid people around me to think, oh, you know, he's done this. And it's funny because I don't hold my friends, men or women, to the same standard. Like, I don't really believe in cheating. I think it's a bad thing. But I don't, I don't judge them for it if they do. If they slip up, I'm not like, ah, oh, if you'll cheat on her, you'll lie to me. Like, I don't really believe that. I think there's a lot of nuance in the situation. It's strictly my own personal belief for who I feel I am. And those, for those reasons, they really carry over in, even into like an agreement, like an open relationship. I just don't know if I could really do it like that. There would have to be extreme situations or extreme circumstances that would, in, in which the relationship with that person, it's overarching and long-term and it supersedes any short-term physical or even emotional situation. And even then, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I got it. I might just not be that guy. I might not be that guy. But more questions coming this week. Uh, I hope I hope you guys are enjoying these, uh, at least my input on the matter, too. Um, I'm, I promise you I will continue to improve because as I talk, I'm, sometimes I feel like I'm just not, I'm, you know, I'm writing the book and it, like when I read it, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And then I, I get edits and I, I send it to people and they're like, oh, change this. And then I'm like, oh, it's so much better. And you don't really get to do that when you speak, you know. So hopefully, uh, hopefully my producer, Grace, can clean this up just a little bit um, without wanting to kill me for the subject matter. So <laughs> moving on to MMA, guys. Um, let's talk about this weekend. So great card. Not a lot of names. Definitely not a lot of names, but a really outstanding event, I felt. So we're going to jump right to the co-main. Mickey, Mickey Gall versus Mike Perry. And I've talked about Mickey Gall before because we actually trained together at the same gym for a week right before I got Lyme disease. And I actually got to see him kind of like develop 
um, through a third party because I, I did get sick, so I wasn't training. But it is pretty cool to see him out at the at the biggest stage. Find a guy in Mike Perry who's really tough, really tough. So spoiler alert, Mike Perry won. But I want to get into some of these details here because I think there's a lot of a lot of the journalists, and I know you guys have heard me last week. I'm not really thrilled with them at the moment, but um, I think some of the analysis was missing there because I actually thought Mickey Gall was winning. Excuse me, sorry guys. I actually thought Mickey Gall was winning the striking battle. Right? I thought his hands were up beautifully. I thought he was landing good jabs, landing good hooks. He would sneak that right hand in, and he was get he was just getting out of the way of those hard shots. His mistake was that he was too tense the entire time. Everything was really tight, and when he would throw, it would just it looked like he was exerting so much more effort. And I'm going to tell you, the first seven and a half minutes of that fight, I think he won clearly. But the last seven and a half minutes, he lost much more clearly, right? And he just he gassed out. That's definitely part of it. But it was it wasn't because of the volume that he was throwing or that he was loading up so much on these punches. It was that the entire time he was waiting to get hit. And he was doing a great job of convincing himself to stay calm. I mean, you could even see himself almost talking at one point. Like, breathe. Okay, you felt the power. Now just keep circling. Don't stop moving. And I thought, I really thought he did great. I mean, his striking looked so much better. And Mike Perry has a bad habit of walking forward with his hands down. And he kind of does it because he loads up his punches. But when he loads them up, he throws like five of them. Right? So it works for him. And he has so much power that you respect it. But Mickey Gall was tagging him. And we're going to get to Mike Perry's area improvement in a second. But Mickey Gall looked really, really good. Truly, I was impressed. But he was way too tense. He was anticipating that shot and was just doing his very best to avoid being a part of it. And in doing so, he wasn't smooth. He wasn't relaxed. It was just that impending moment of pain, right? He was just waiting to get hit. And I think that was the the big issue for him. He was just waiting to get hit. With that said, hats off to Mike Perry because he did lose that first round and he was on his way to losing the second before he really turned it up and started catching Mickey and, and put Mickey in a bad bad situation. Um, his grappling was really improved. I think I called it that I said if it's going to all depend on how Mickey Gall handles those first two minutes and if he can put Mike Perry on his back and put him in a bad position um, grappling-wise. But not for nothing. I thought Mike Perry won the grappling exchanges. If anything, I felt that the beginning, Mickey Gall was winning the striking exchanges, and I think that's something a lot of the analysts missed. But he was—he just was not able to win those grappling exchanges, especially when he would shoot in on takedowns. They just weren't there. There was just—it was just like he couldn't deal with that type of strength. And Mickey Gall is a great grappler, but he's a jujitsu guy, not a wrestler. So when Perry first clinched up with him. It was advantageous for Mickey Gall, and you could tell that Perry was impressed with that type of length and like that ligament strength you get when you deal with long guys. They're like just everything's so much longer, so they're just their their leverage is different, right? But when Mickey Gall would shoot in and he would enter into situations where Mike Perry's like compact, violent power had the advantage, you really could see that there was a significant difference. And I mean, and you it just he couldn't get the fight where he wanted it to. And even though he was doing great backing up and striking, and then he a couple times he got Mike Perry to back up, which isn't that common, there just wasn't the power and strength behind the technique that you need to deal with somebody like Mike Perry, who's a very good athlete. He's not just strong. He's a good athlete. So for, for Mickey Gall, I think you have a lot to be proud of, right? Like things you did right, definitely are striking. 
definitely your defense. Tremendous. Tremendous. Areas for improvement? Uh, you know, look, you got to do... We, I think we got to hit the strength conditioning a little bit harder because there's a strength issue. we got to wrestle a little bit more, and we got to relax. Keep the hands up, but don't keep the shoulders tight. Hands up, hands up, hands up. Then when the punch comes, boom, then you block. Everything's relaxed, everything's relaxed. Boom, then you block. Hands are here, right? That's how you kind of deal with that. For Mike Perry, I felt that his pressure, as always, was tremendous. It was excellent. His power is still there, but he did look a little stiff. His hands are so low. He carries his hands so low, and he gets hit a lot more than he needs to. And he does that just to close the distance, and he's just going to start trading. But you've seen when he fought guys like Vicente Luque or Jeff Neal, when he starts getting into those exchanges, there's just such a big disparity. Like, he's really getting beat up. Because those are, those are guys who can hit him and then not get hit. They can crack him hard and then get right out of the way. And for Mickey Gall, who was throwing, he was hitting Mike, uh, Mike Perry pretty hard. He doesn't quite have that same level of power that these other guys have in the division. Right, he's longer and a little rangier, and I think he's going to develop a style. I, I would say similar to maybe even Dan Hooker, who we're going to get get to in a minute. But Mike Perry just—he's got to improve some things, and there's there's so many ways that he could fight, and so many small adjustments he can make that would make him a lot more effective. You know, putting your putting your earmuffs up or goggles on, and just walking people down with light, like a little bit of head movement, closing the distance, following the jab, keeping your shoulder up, small things like that for Mike Perry would go so far because you know he's just trying to get his hands on you and knock you out. You know that's what he's trying to do. But when he closes distance with his hands low, loaded up, and he just starts throwing, you can only hit so hard while you're getting hit. So he needs to develop a way to, at least if he is going to get hit hard, block him or keep a, less of a target because his phase is just right there. And when you go with these guys who hit hard, I just don't think you could reasonably take that type of punishment especially when you get to the upper echelons of the division. But his grappling has improved. Man, has it ever. Because Mickey Gall could do nothing on the ground. He couldn't take Mike Perry down. And he, when he when they were on the ground in these exchanges, outside of one Kimura sweep, he couldn't really do a whole lot else. And Perry just Mike Perry just kind of muscled out of that Kimura sweep, too. It, they ended up standing up, but he just muscled it up. So... There's there's definitely areas of improvement for Mike Perry. I think with his style and mentality, he can make some small adjustments that would really go a long way, and that would be immediate, immediate to do. I'm talking effortless. Day one, he makes this adjustment, and he sees an immediate positive difference. Um, his wrestling looks great. His grappling looks great. I think his boxing could be a little crisper, but it's just his defense on the way in. He's got to be a little bit better defensively on the way inside. And with that said, I'm impressed with him. And, and you know, he's a wild man, right? Uh, his corner woman, in this case, was his girlfriend. That was the only corner he came out with. And I'm not going to lie to you, like, that was fun. That was fun. You know, she wasn't really offering super technical advice, if any. But what Mike Perry talked about was really important. I think this is something a lot of people don't understand. Fighting is so personal and it's so emotional. It's not football. It's not baseball, right? It's not just, it's not a game. It's a fight. It's a fight. So when you hear somebody like Mike Perry say, I don't need somebody going in there and tell me what I'm doing right or wrong like I'm a robot. I'm not a, I'm not a video game character. I need somebody who's with me in there, who cares. What he's really saying is that 
he needs to feel like you're you're with him through thick and thin, regardless of the fighting. He just wants a friend. And guys have said this in the past, and, and there's so much value to that. So much value to that. Sometimes, even if you know the person you're with is not that tough, and they're not going to like throw down with you, and if they did, man, they're going to get blown right by. But just having a friend there, somebody who you know cares about you, makes you perform better. It gives you a sense of comfort and a sense of security that you don't get when you have somebody who might know the game better than anybody, but is just coaching you from such a distance, such an emotional distance. You want somebody to care. And I thought, believe it or not, I don't really... <laughs> Mike, if you ever listen to this, I'm just going to say it how it is. You're not the most eloquent speaker. But let me tell you what. You sounded incredibly eloquent when you were talking about that want for that emotional connection in your corner. And to your credit, to his credit, what better person than the girl you're seeing, right? I mean, I think for me, you know, you guys all know my opinion on dating. I, I have a couple of friends I'd pick before anybody. My father, right? One of them. But I get it. I get it. You knew that she wanted to see nothing more than to him succeed. Excuse me, than for him to succeed. That's all she wanted. And there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about that. Prior to this, I really kind of thought it was silly to only have one corner man, and that corner man being your corner woman who's your girlfriend. But I get it. I, I understood what he was saying. You just want to have your friend there. You want to have somebody who cares. You want to have somebody who's emotionally invested in you and the outcome of the current situation you're in. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I really respect that. I really do respect that. That, that It's a deeper thought than I originally expected. Um, so hats off to Mike Perry. Small adjustments you need to make. I mean, like if I can get Mike Perry with like Coach Tone... I think in like one month, his game would change forever because he's really not that far off. He's not that far off. They threw him to the Wolves. He fought competition that I thought I thought was just a little bit too high for where he was in his career. Not as an insult, but just as an experience point of view. But he's not that far. He's not that far. So, moving on to the main event. Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker. Uh, I, I think that Zhang Wei Li and Yuan Yan Jacek is probably still fight of the year so far, but the round of the year is definitely round two of Dustin Poirier, Dan Hooker. And you could make the argument that it was a fight of the year. The fifth round, there was a big drop off though, which I don't mean this as an insult. Like I am, I am really, really reaching here. But just to go over this comparison, because I heard Luke Thomas talk about it, and I think it was uh, it was he was valid in all of his points. Um. There's there was just a little bit of drop off, whereas with Weili Zhang, excuse me, Zhang Weili and Yuan Young Jacek, there wasn't that same drop drop off. They were still like putting on an incredible pace into that fifth round, and of course we acknowledge their size, everything that goes with that. Totally get it, uh, but uh, that's important to say. I mean, really, really, it's just worth noting before before I start saying that Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker is not fight of the year. I mean, this was one of the best fights I've ever seen, and I will tell you that in that second round, I stood up. Right, I had a couple friends over. I had never been like that. Was one of the craziest things I had seen. The, the exchanges were just, man, oh man. I'm not, I, I need to do a proper analysis, but I just let me get some of this out of the way because I was just so impressed. It was such an amazing fight. It was so, it was so much better than I thought it would be, and I didn't. I knew it would be good, but this just exceeded all expectations. It's one of those times where you felt like you were watching history. It reminded me of Roy McDonald and Robbie Lawler too. 
it reminded me of Wei Li, uh, Zhang Weili and Yuani and Jacek. Like this was what it was like. This is the pinnacle of the sport, and I felt like I'm watching history. So with that said, the first two rounds you really got to see Dan Hooker shine because he was using great kickboxing, uh, a lot of light kicks, a lot of jabs, and really every time he would get hit, he would come back with three or four. And for Dustin Poirier, you saw him fighting to get on the inside and blocking like like only Dustin Poirier does. His his inside boxing is so impressive. I mean, it's just so impressive. And whenever Hooker would really start to get the momentum and really start to work his knees in and open up, Poirier would crack him with an incredibly accurate counterpunch that would send the, the fight go, would go the complete opposite direction. And those first two rounds, I did think that Dan Hooker was winning. Um, there was one point in the second round where I was like, oh, Poirier's put, we're about to walk away from it, but then Hooker just put it on him and stole the round. Amazing. I, I encourage everybody to watch round two. But rounds three and four, you really start to so, you start to see Poirier just kind of catch his breath is the best way I could describe it. Like, I don't want to say he found another gear because it wasn't like he blew right past Dan Hooker. It just looked like they were both so tired but Poirier was able to get his breath just a little bit quicker, right? It wasn't like he, he shifted into another gear and blew, you know, Dan, left Dan Hooker in the dust. It was just a little bit more. He was like a little bit quicker on the recovery. And that little bit of recovery continued to get bigger and bigger throughout the fight, right? Like he just, that, the last three rounds, each round he was just recovering a little bit faster and hitting Hooker a little bit more. And it was a little bit cleaner and doing a little bit more damage. And it was, it really allowed him, I feel, I don't want to say walk away from the fight, but definitively win three rounds to two and there's such a story to tell with Poirier the type of person he is who he's fought throughout his career just as there was a fightville documentary back in the day before he even made it to the UFC there's just so much that about this guy that is top-notch he's an awesome guy awesome guy but this fight especially after coming off the Khabib loss and having a long layoff for a torn labrum in his hip and a surgery and everything that goes with that and that's a long recovery by the way it was such a defining moment because now, truthfully, he's one fight away from the title shot. I think because the way the Khabib fight went, nobody really got jazzed up for it. But he beat Dan Hooker, who was on a three-fight win streak and was scoring up the rankings. Scoring up the rankings. Scorching up the rankings. But, I mean, you have Tony Ferguson. You have Nate Diaz. Two intriguing matchups for Dustin Poirier to fight. You have the Conor McGregor rematch, which... Doesn't really do it for me, if I'm being honest. Doesn't really do it. I think there's so many people for Connor to fight that a Nate Diaz rematch for the, the third time or a Dustin Poirier rematch just for the second doesn't really light my fire the way it would. Um, I think if, if there was ever a time, it would be Connor. If Gaethje does beat Khabib, it would be Connor coming back. Maybe he, he goes right to the top and he fights Gaethje, right? Something like that. Something really intriguing. Or he, he fights, I was thinking maybe he could fight. Dan Hooker, but maybe he fought, Conor McGregor fights Tony Ferguson. But if he doesn't, I think that's Dustin Poirier's fight. A Tony Ferguson matchup, he wins there. Even though Ferguson's coming off of a loss and Poirier's coming off of a win, since Poirier already fought Khabib, it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot there. And with Gaethje and Khabib fighting, if, if Gaethje wins... Poirier's got the shot, but I just don't see him getting an immediate title shot if Khabib manages to beat Gaethje. So that's kind of like the the strangeness of that division right now. But Poirier is right up there, and he has absolutely every right to be. And uh, 
<laughs> you can't help but feel happy for the guy. Truly. It, an amazing fight. I mean, such an amazing fight. And for Dan Hooker, hey, look, man, there's still so many matchups he could take, but I wouldn't be surprised between Hooker's last two fights. Now, I happen to believe he lost to Paul Felder. Full stop. But between Paul Felder and Dustin Poirier, he's taken a ton of damage. He's dished out a ton of damage. I think the guy needs to take a break. Catch your breath. Relax. And let's reevaluate in a few months. Maybe six months. Maybe even take a year. Develop your skills. Minimal sparring. Let your body heal up a bit. And, and I hope that the science of the sport allows athletes like Dan Hooker and Dustin Poirier to not only take that much damage, but also extend their career and heal properly so that they can maintain their prime and maintain their optimal level of human performance for as long as possible. But with that level of human performance, I want to talk about Umzu supplements. So I'm going to talk about Umzu supplements. So um, I mentioned them briefly, and again, they're not sponsoring this podcast. So right off the bat, I am starting to work as an ambassador for them. And I want to, the reason I'm doing this is not because like I just entered a, a raffle or anything like that. I actually reached out to them directly. So everybody here knows I have Lyme disease. I, I actually mentioned it earlier when I was talking about Mickey Gall. But I do deal with some chronic Lyme symptoms. And for me, I'm lucky because even though it took about three years of my life <laughs> from me, um, I can't complain because I live a pretty wild life in terms of the things I accomplish. Now, I'm not out partying. I don't really get to do things like that because my body just doesn't handle it. Late nights out just kind of wear me down, so I'm better if I um, play Xbox and get to bed early, just at its core. But that's fine because, you know, I'm starting a new business. I own the gym. Um, I'm a full-time, I have a full-time job as a consultant. I'm chasing my dream as a commentator. I'm doing this podcast. I'm writing this book. Like, I, have a, I do a lot of things that require mental acuity and just they take time, right? And it's just it's time, effort, and energy. And when you have Lyme disease, you have none of those things. Or if you do, it's, it's very limited. So the reason I bring it up is because the Umzu supplements, specifically Redwood, which I'm going to talk specifically about in a minute. I think I said specifically too many times, but that's fine. They've really let me just get more throughout the day. So I'm not a big believer in supplements. I, quite frankly, I think most of them are snake oil. But I've noticed that I really do feel better throughout the day. Like I don't get that, that tiredness. These supplements just kind of keep me going, right? So I don't get tired in the middle of the day. I feel sharp throughout the entire day. Um, after I eat dinner right around eight o'clock, I'm useless. I'm playing Xbox, I'm watching TV and I'm recovering for the next day. But I really do get, I get so much more done so much more efficiently throughout the day. And that to me has been one of the biggest impacts of taking Umzu supplements. So to make this long story short, I actually reached out to them directly and I, I kind of told them my story. I was like, guys, like, thank you. Like, I, I owe you one because you've, you've had such a positive impact on my life and I wish I knew about you guys sooner. So this led to the discussion of the ambassadorship and they were just starting it and I got right in there, sent them a video, and now I'm a part of this team. So Umsu Supplements is just, they've had such a positive impact on my life. So I'm now working as an ambassador for them. And like anything on social media, all that means is that I'm just going to take some pictures, post some stuff about it. Uh, you'll see me on their website. And on top of that, I get a discount code. So I'm going to be sharing that with all of you both on here and on my Instagram. Um, I, I think the discount code is actually like a link, but I'm going to see if I can get it into like Charles 20 or something like that. It's 20% off. But I'm going to talk about a little bit each week about some of the stuff I'm taking. Um, right now I'm taking this stuff called Redwood, Testro Plus, um, Miracle Morning, and their Protein. 
and then like basically everything that helps with uh, nitric oxide levels, um, keeping your cortisol levels in check, and kind of like fighting off that that energy decrease that you get, everybody gets, but that I, I especially get having Lyme disease. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them. Again, guys, I don't want to sound like this is a read because unfortunately it's not, but I really, they, they really change things up for me. So I would be lying if, to, if I didn't try to share that with you guys. And if they can help you the way they help me, I would be even more pumped. So the honesty is that I'm not getting any money from them, but the, uh, the fact of the matter is I'm going to hopefully in the future. <laughs> All right. But listen, guys, I'm going to wrap it up for today. This is the first episode of the video. We got the backdrop. We got the studio going. Things are happening. And I could not be happier with where this podcast is going. And with all the things going on right now, you're going to see a lot more of the Lover and the Fighter and all that content moving forward. All right. So we got big plans. Stick with us. All right. Uh, check out my Instagram as well as Lover Fighter Instagram. Next week, we're going to be, or I should say this week, we're definitely going to do another poll. I haven't quite decided, but I have a few different topics I want to get into. And we'll keep this party running. All right. I hope everybody has a good one. And I will be back next week for the next episode of the love and the fighter. I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us got